Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Jan, you're back. I am back. I am back. Welcome and I'm, back. I, I'm, and you know, I'm even thinking further back in my life. I remember the subjects I did in year 12. And you've got an author to tell you about some of that. And these. it was Australian history. I know a lot about the husband, but the wife... Oh, it was his story, not hers. <laughs> Michelle Scott Tucker's book uh, is, I, and in it, I read about a small elderly woman in whom love and ambition and sheer force of will had combined to create a din- dynasty. This is not a romance fiction. This is a very well searched biography. Welcome, Michelle. And who was that lady? Hi, Jan. Thank you for that. Elizabeth MacArthur was a Jane Austen heroine who, instead of marrying a Darcy, married a Wickham and came to New South Wales, arrived in 1790 and for the next 60 years was a major player in the colony. She was fascinating. She was. Well, where did she grow up? She grew up in a tiny little village in the north of Devon. Um, If you've seen, if you've read Jane Austen or seen one of those bonnet dramas, you've seen her village. (laughs) It's very similar. Um, And... She was a farmer's daughter herself and, and her family for generations were farmers as well. She wasn't well-to-do. She wasn't one of the gentry um, and she married a soldier who also wasn't particularly well-to-do. She had a, a good friend in the town. She did. The Reverend Kingdon's eldest daughter was called Bridget and she was Elizabeth's best and closest friend. And when Elizabeth MacArthur came to Australia, luckily she wrote to Bridget and regularly. And that's where you got a lot of the information. A lot. Because, of course, she's telling her friend, this is what it's like for me here. This is what we're doing now. This is what the situation is like. And her letters are jam-packed with detail. We're lucky to have them. Detail but not emotion. Not really because that she knew the letters were going to be for public be publicly handed around within the village so she tended to keep them at a, at a public level without going too much into the depth about what she was thinking or feeling about any particular thing. And when Bridget died, who did she write to? Uh, then to Bridget's much younger sister who was also her goddaughter. Now incredibly so that this whole family really stayed around Bridge Rule for many many years and into this came John MacArthur, and he was called a stray. <laughs> he was. He was brought up in Plymouth, um, so he was that. You know, that's a day's ride away from where uh, Bridge Rule is. Um, and he he came to the area, and he was th- the village didn't like him. They thought him haughty and arrogant, and far too proud for a man who had absolutely no money. Well, and maybe he was anyway. <laughs> they were we'll right. Have to read on and find out. <laughs> so she married him, and she quickly left. Where to? Uh, she left uh, in the first place to go to London, and that's partly because they married, and then five months later, shockingly, they had a baby. <gasps> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she probably deliberately got out of the village to have the baby so that people couldn't quite work out that the baby was big for dates. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he got a, a job or chose to take a, um, a, a naval job in uh, on the second fleet 
that came out to Australia. That's right. Uh, John was posted to the garrison in New South Wales and he and Elizabeth MacArthur travelled with the second fleet in 1790 and that was the worst fleet ever to leave England for Australia. The The contractual arrangements were appalling. The convicts died like flies and Elizabeth had a a torrid time of it. Well, she was not only nursing a very sick husband and an eight-month-old baby, but she also lost a daughter on board. She did. And, you know, once again, didn't really write about it, you know, sympathetically or... Not at all. So life in Sydney... Did she find it easy? (laughs) Well, when she arrived in Sydney, the first fleeters had been there for three years and that was sick of the sight of each other's faces. And so when this lively, beautiful, articulate young woman turns up in in their midst, she's suddenly Miss Popularity, frankly. And they fell over one another to be her friend. Look, as you write, she was curious and optimistic about her new landscape. She was also popular with the uh, other officers and she learned things from them. She learned about stars and how to play the piano. And uh, Watkin Tench was also a visitor, a, a very regular visitor. That's right. What Tench doesn't mention her in his own book mm. or only in very quietly he couldn't resist putting her in a footnote but it wouldn't wouldn't have been quite proper for him to mention someone else's wife in his own story but from Elizabeth's letters we learn that he visited her nearly every day and they were quite close friends um, and and she relied on him and, and the other officers to just relieve the boredom really of those early years of the colony. What about women friends? She complained that she didn't have any, and to an extent she was right. There were other women in the colony, but there were no other officers' wives. So the the moors of the time meant she couldn't make friends with the convict women. This was her moors, though, wasn't it? It were, but they would have been policed by the officers as well. Um, oh, well, they made friends with the women. <laughs> well, they had a different kind of friendship. <laughs> so she felt unable to make friends with some of the other women that were there, and, and as a result was quite lonely in those early years. Mm. When some of the other officers did bring their wives along, this is uh, Mrs Parker and Mrs King and um, Mrs Marsden, you know, uh, I know you write about her never being pretentious. You know, she had this Devonshire accent, which she knew would never be seen as upper class. That's right. And you sort of tend to wonder what they talked about. It could have been their numerous children. I suspect they did. They were all women of, of an age with young families and like most, they'd talked as women do today about their families, about their husbands, about their daily lives, the servant problem, that's a perennial problem that they might have spoken about as well. And they talked about each other behind each other's backs, <laughs> inevitably. <laughs> Talking about their wives, you know, their, their husbands, and um, I'm thinking about what Elizabeth MacArthur might have said about her husband, John. In public, she was always deeply loyal to him and and always supportive, even though he was, as I said, a very difficult man. And by the time they'd been in the colony a few years, he'd started fighting. The colony is full of alpha men with unclear chains of command. It was inevitable that there was going to be squabbling and bickering. There was the Navy and the Army. There's rivalries there as well. And in public... Elizabeth was always completely loyal to him. In private, she had a little more to say and, <laughs> and was was less supportive of some of his wilder gaffes. Absolutely. This is a quote. In the absence of money or family connections, it was honour upon which his status as a gentleman absolutely depended. 
So, of course, he took himself off to duels quite a lot. All the time, which was, you know, terrific for his honour, but less terrific for his wife and family if he got himself killed. Yes, no, <laughs> not thinking of the consequences at all. Not at all. Um, oh. And then later he went into a duel with his commanding officer. Not a career-enhancing move, <laughs> particularly when he won the duel by shooting the officer in the shoulder. Um, and as a result, he was sent overseas and Elizabeth was left behind to hold the fort. Oh, quite often she was sent left. Look, this is... There was one officer that he actually got on very well with. This was uh, a Captain Goss, Gross, and through Captain Gross, he got the land grant. He did. He got, and they got their first 100 acres and off they went. Now, Elizabeth Farm. You even have a reason why he might have called it Elizabeth, Elizabeth Farm. Farm. It was John that chose the name, but I don't think he could have chosen it without Elizabeth's tacit approval, even if she modestly demurred in the first place. And that's John's shot in the eye to his fellow officers. He's the only man virtually in the colony with a real wife who he's legally married to. The other officers had mistresses and convict mistresses who often became their de facto wives and they were together for years. But John had a genteel wife, a proper wife, and by calling his farm Elizabeth Farm, he's basically bragging about that fact. Mm, interesting stuff. Um, now, we, you spoke about John having to go back to England, well, banished because, you know, he's taken the shot, his commanding officer. But it, 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 there were two times that he went back and both times Elizabeth had no idea how long he was going to go for. That's right. So he was missing 12 years. 12 in years in total. Um and Elizabeth was left behind to manage what was by then thousands of acres of undeveloped land, um, and she was the one who got the infrastructure in place, who managed the servants who were convicts and, and emancipists and free settlers as well. She also managed their other business ventures. They had, um, as well as sheep, they were running cattle, they bred horses, they had trading ventures in the South Seas and sealing and whaling ventures as well. And every now and again, John would send in a shipload of commercial goods to be sold in Sydney. So again, she had to deal with that, unload it, catalogue it, advertise it, sell it, uh, um, account for it all in her spare time. In her spare time. <laughs> and of course, she everything was under his name. This, right. this, this. I love this that she asked Matthew Flinders. Now, this is a name that everybody knows. She asked Matthew Flinders how to enforce payment. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that was a bright move asking Matthew <laughs> Flinders for legal advice, and and he was frankly all at sea. So he looked up encyclo- he looked up Encyclopedia Britannica for her and quoted and basically restated her problem, <laughs> and wasn't very helpful at all. But she was friends with Matthew Flinders. She was friends with all the key players in the colony, with Governor Philip Matthew Flinders, later with Lachlan and Elizabeth Macquarie. Uh, much later, when Charles Darwin visited Sydney on his famous Beagle voyage, he'd been to the Galapagos came to Sydney, he had lunch with the MacArthur family. So she was she was certainly a player in, in Well, this is one of her jobs, being a hostess. You know, she, she had to entertain well, a, Mari, a tattooed Maori warriors. Yeah, that's right. Chinese, uh, French, Catholics. <laughs> which, which speaks to her open-mindedness, I think, that, that their son's tutor was a French Catholic. She was happy to have these Maori diplomats in, in her home and host them for dinner. Um, she had Aboriginal friends who, who were regularly visiting her at Elizabeth Farm. She was, for her time and for that period, she was remarkably open to who she socialised with. 
she was also pretty isolated out there. You know, she had, um, well, when, when John and the oldest children were away, being educated and uh, not being able to return, let's say, um, there was a variety of times that she actually had to evacuate Elizabeth Farm. This was when there was fires going on, when there was an Irish rebellion going on, and also when there were Aboriginal killings on the on the edges of the farm in retribution to them being killed too. That's right. So she really did, even though her farm is now in the heart of Parramatta, at the time that was on the edge of the colonial frontier and then they got further land down at Camden, about 70 kilometres to the southwest, and again that was on the edge of the colonial frontier as well. When the Irish rose at Castle Hill, Elizabeth had to flee down the Parramatta River with her small children in an open boat and found out later that the Irish had planned to set her house on fire, knowing that the regiment would come to her rescue, be distracted, and then the Irish could could rise up further. That didn't happen, thankfully, for Elizabeth, but she was often in quite real danger. Absolutely, but she never really wrote about it. Um, Her letters focus on what she thinks her readers want to hear, in that she was like the soldier who writes jolly letters home without ever mentioning the war. That's right, and, and that's just part of part of parcel of being a woman in that era and not, not complaining. So, so after eight years, her husband, her eldest son and a nephew returned to take over Elizabeth Farm. What does the role become then? Uh, you'd think she'd be able to sit back and relax mm. at that stage, but John's behaviour gets more and more erratic um, and more problematic, and she's, in fact... Uh, he starts renovating and, and building and constantly um, moving and, and making trouble within the community. So again, she's got the role of peacekeeper and, and trying to ameliorate his, his wilder gaffes still. And finally, to use the parlance of the day, he's certified insane and has to be confined at home. Yes. And so she's dealing with all those issues as well. Well, from, from a very close couple that ran away to have an adventure together, they certainly separated and... Uh, you find out why. <laughs> That's right. It oh, wasn't an easy marriage. No, no, no. And she had to deal with so much. And when she actually did complain of a migraine, her husband John's response was, quote, take care of yourself and be cheerful. Your headache will go off then. <laughs> he's, he's very helpful. He's just great. <laughs> and I, I just love this, that when one of her children came back, because she had seven children and two had died, you know, there's a lot to do with all of those. When one of her, her children, Edward, uh, no, James, returned with wife, she was so worried about what her daughter-in-law would think about her. That's right. Her daughter-in-law was from a wealthy banking family and she's this woman who's lived in the provinces really her whole life Um, and she was quite an elderly woman by then and she was quite worried. She didn't need to worry. Her daughter-in-law was lovely and it all worked out. You know, sort of everything to do with the wool really came back to Elizabeth. So, look, um, Shel Scott Tucker, you wrote this biography. Uh, you acknowledge the Writers, uh, Writers Victoria, the Hazel Rowley Fellowship, uh, Varuna, and uh, a professional development program in ACT. And you thank all the librarians. Now, I love this. What's your, what's your collective word for librarians? A kindness of librarians. Oh, I thought that they was were so good to just me. Just lovely. And you write about Elizabeth MacArthur having her preferred reading being biographies, history and travel. Well, I reckon she would have loved this book. Oh, I really <laughs> hope so. We'll never know. <laughs> 
Well, we've got a slim connection here with the book I'm talking about, Sheep, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Never Say Never is a standard maxim, and Robert Hillman utilises that notion in his novel The Bookshop of the Brokenhearted. So, Robert, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. Now, your protagonist here is Tom Hope, mm-hmm. an interesting name you've chosen here. Yes, it 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 wasn't as uh, uh, as uh, sort of diagrammatic as a, as it seems. I hadn't thought to myself long and hard, what sort of name can I give him that will evoke something? It just came out of me. It just came out of you. But he has had struggles. I mean, he's when we uh, begin the novel, his marriage is in difficulty with Trudy, mm-hmm. and she leaves. And sometimes now, in the effort of his work, he thought. She was with him still, but when he looked around, there was nothing. The hills and the apple gums and the karawongs. Um, so he's sort of this, this emotional landscape of Tom mm-hmm. is what, we, uh, what you convey to us of this man. Uh, yes, it, uh, we, the, the uh, reader is invited to think about uh, the life that uh, Tom's wife Trudy is living and the sort of man Tom is. Who, he's uh, sort of naive and when we first meet him, almost a sort of a one-dimensional type of man. He has an ambition. He, he, he can love uh, and he has an ambition to, to have a healthy and th- happy and thriving marriage. Trudy is, uh, comes from the city to the farm and... Uh, Trudy uh, uh, is subjected to the, the tedium of, of the wife of a farmer. She has no ambition to, to, to thrive on a farm. And she doesn't appreciate what the farm has to offer, so you've got that city-country divide. No. Yes, the city-country divide. Uh, she came from the city and uh, really she wants to go back to the city. She wants to be away from the farm and the rain and the tedium of it all. And she leaves, leaving Tom desolate, but returns. But there is a challenge then here. Yes, when she does return, she returns after uh, after about uh, uh, eighteen months, uh, and Tom has missed her every day. You know, he he thinks constantly about what what might I do as a husband that would make her life uh, uh, flourish more, uh, and he makes a list of all all the things, uh, sort of uh, the sort of things like get a bird for her, uh, a canary in a cage, get a bird for her, um, build a better. Bathtub, things like this, and he thinks Ask questions of it. He yeah, thinks yeah. that it's a, it, it's it's a, it's it's like a project. You know, if she comes back, if she comes back, I can make her happier. He doesn't realise the reason that she properly understand the reason that she's. That she's he takes up. the burden on himself. He does take the ways. burden on himself. Yes, but there's another problem. There is another problem when when Trudy comes back. It's, she's only been back for less than a day, when she reveals to him that she is pregnant. And uh, of, of course, it's uh, it's <laughs> the the father is somebody else, and Tom. It's uh, a devastating blow for Tom. A devastating but blow. Tom does form a relationship with the child among the sheep in the hill paddocks. Tom encouraged the boy to trot uh, to trot along beside him. He he said, "Big fat sheep up here," and the boy said, "Big buggers." So he's, he's established a rapport with this boy. Yes, well, it, it's another feature of Tom that he's in his nature he's a very generous person, and rather than feel bitter and uh, and, and betrayed by by uh, Trudy, um, when she he he looks after her, supports her while she has the baby, she has the baby, and he loves the child. He loves Peter, and uh, uh, and is prepared to care for him even when Trudy 
once again abandons. And the devastation therefore amplifies because Trudy abandons Tom again and takes Peter with her. Yes, he, at first of all she, she leaves Tom for the second time just and leaving Peter behind. Tom is uh, left in charge of Peter and he embraces the role of father. Uh, he cares for the child with great love and, 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 uh, and concern, raises the child for three years by himself before Trudy comes back and says, I'm taking him, and takes the child away again. And where does she take him? She takes him to a camp. It's important that it's a camp. It's called Jesus Camp. It's a type of fundamentalist Christian community down on Phillip Island. She takes him to uh, a camp to live with her. She says, I want him to, to um, live a beloved life with Jesus because she has, Trudy has become a convert to fundamentalist Christianity. So she takes him to the camp and... But it speaks to the struggles that, that Trudy has in her own life to yes, sort of find yeah. purpose and direction. Yes, yes, yes. She, Trudy is a, a, a young woman who uh, wants life to be more vivid than she's able to make it. Um, perhaps not with not quite with the imagination she would need in order to make her life more vivid. Uh, she seizes on one thing and then another and then another. She seizes on marriage with Tom. She seizes on on um, the, the relationship the with the, the, yeah. that she had when she was away from Tom. And now it's Christianity. It, it's, it's Jesus. Yeah. But into Tom's life then comes Hannah, but she's got an interesting background. Hannah is uh, based on, a, on a, a teacher that I had when I was in... Um, when I was in high school in Alexandra, uh, because hometown is based on my hometown of Eildon. Um, and uh, we had a, a teacher who came, and uh, she was only there for a year. She was a German-Jewish woman. She was, full, she was very vivacious, very sophisticated and witty. Um, and uh, she, uh, she was a, a sort of a revelation to me. I, I had never met a sophisticated European person before. And I recognised that there was something something really, really special, something vivid about her. Um, and uh, so she became the model. Uh, she left after a year. She, one of these teachers who were recruited by the education department to come to Australia, teach in the country for a certain period of time uh, as part of a sort of a contract, and then they could go on elsewhere if they wanted to. So she became... I didn't know... I'd never met a Jewish person before. Hardly anybody in my hometown had. And... Um, uh, so uh, I, that added to her exotic quality. You know, she was Jewish. But what it meant to be a Jewish woman of the age of 45 who had survived the war, a German Jewish woman, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know about the Holocaust. And nobody in my hometown knew terribly much about the Holocaust. The Japanese in the Pacific War, yes, of course we knew about them and they were terrible people and everything like that. The, the Nazis, we uh, didn't know... In fact, not ter not everybody knew about the death camps in 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 Australia in 1960. So Hannah has walked out of struggled out of Auschwitz, and she opens a bookshop, which is where we get the title, "The Bookshop of the Broken Hearted." Right. But there is a particular aim with this bookshop. There is a particular uh, uh, Hannah is of course carries a you know a frightful freight of grief and remorse and everything that she's endured, which is related in, in in the book in flashbacks what she's endured at, uh, at her time in Auschwitz and after Auschwitz um, uh, she um, uh, she know the 
the reader is uh, is uh, made aware that in the, at a certain time in 1932 in Berlin, there was the great book burning where the German student union were invited to bring books of, that were uh, anti-Aryan uh, and uh, subversive to a certain place, the Opperplatz in Berlin, where they were set on fire. And it's estimated that 25,000 books were burnt on that day. It becomes Hannah's project, as it were, like something, there's a type of, uh, there's something at stake in f- for her in this in this um, this mission to open a bookshop and where in the middle of the rural Australia at the time it's a, it's a chaotic thing to do uh, to open a, a a bookshop and sell twenty five thousand copies. When she reaches that twenty five thousand, there'd be something will have been achieved, and of course it's it's a crazy thing to do, but she has the the wherewithal to stick with it. Now, a complication occurs. Mm -hmm. There's the opportunity of Peter returning, but Hannah cannot face this prospect. This is where Hannah has said Mm. never. And the reason why she can't face the prospect of raising Peter? Hannah's uh, uh, young son, four-year-old son, uh, Michael, uh, perished in Auschwitz. Uh, while he was in her care and she feels that it was due to a moment of negligence uh, that that he was uh, snatched and taken away and, and he was dead within a short time. Which is an interesting parallel with Tom, taking the burden yes. on yourself when yes. something catastrophic takes place. Yes, the, that's a suggestion in, in, in the book that... Uh, that uh, um, that uh, the people of a very generous nature are inclined to take upon themselves the burden of, of, of guilt. But Peter has actually run away from Jesus' camp yes. and on several occasions, etc. And Tom is um, working to legally get the child, even though he's not related. But Tom, uh, sorry, Peter is persecuted as well. Yes, there's, uh, there's further suggestion in the book that there are two camps. There's the Jesus camp, and Peter, of course, is a, is a, a victim of one camp, uh, of a far, far, far worse and more uh, uh, hideous uh, type of camp, of course, is the death camps like Auschwitz. Um, but Peter is, uh, is in, his mother has taken him back to the camp. He's, uh, uh, he's there against his will. He loves Tom. He wants to be back with Tom. Tom, by this time, of course, is married to Hannah, Hannah has made a vow, and in the book there is, I've uh, spoken about vows and how dangerous they are, you know, and in fact, how unavailing vows are. Because life's circumstances mm-hmm. often uh, interfere with of course. those vows. Yes, of so course. So having um, a child or the opportunity to raise a child that is not your own, mm-hmm. uh, the persecution levelled by others which you have no control over. So you've got to live with the circumstances and work with the circumstances that uh, you are faced with on many occasions. Uh, yes, it's uh, the, in, in the book where there's an argument that, uh, that vows, in a way, are sort of uh, anti-life, against life. You know, if a vow becomes unavailing, it, it ought to be abandoned. And Tom, Tom uh, the uh, Trudy, uh, sorry, um, Hannah, Hannah, can't ab- abandon that vow. It's like in the, um, she, um, uh, she says, I, I can't live with another child. I can't have another child in my care to love. Because, well, Never again in my and, life. And you put it nicely, you know, she's taking her revenge on God is, mm-hmm. is one aspect. 
So Hannah leaves. So here's Tom, who's again faced with the prospect of losing a wife. But he still, yes. doesn't, he still doesn't give up hope, if I can use his surname. Well, uh, when he, he tells Hannah, Tom is coming back to live with us. Mm. And Hannah has said to him, um, because Tom has made it a couple of attempts in the, in, in the past to try and get back to Tom. She said to Tom, if he comes back, I have to go. Mm. Now, this is an impossible situation. Here's a child that Tom loves and who loves Tom and wants to be only with him. And Tom can hardly say, oh, no, I'm sorry. No, this is not possible. I'm, I'm married now and my, my wife can't have you in her life. And Tom can't give up living, uh, loving Hannah yes. as well. Yeah. And you bring it together. We're not going to give away the ending of the book, but mm-hmm. Tom has an encounter with George, who's uh, another Jew, mm-hmm. and George is sounding him out at one stage. And he, George says, you hear what I said, Tom? God lets us love. This is all we can ask. If it becomes a catastrophe, that's a horrible thing. But God lets us love. Yes, that's uh, that's something that I hope the reader might uh, dwell on a, a little bit. The, um, the the that love in itself will encounter impediments. Love is love uh, always encounters impediments. Um, depending on the type of person we uh, uh, we are. Um, the way in which we negotiate the impediments. Hannah is asked to do something which is almost inhumanly difficult in embracing another another child. Tom is asked to do something which is inhumanly difficult, which is to give up Hannah uh, for the sake of uh, Peter. Um, so these are the these are the frightful impediments that that, that love faces, and but, but they also can be negotiated. The actions of other people. I mean, Trudy's. Uh, instability mm-hmm. um, you have the instability of the Jesus camp and the, and the uh, apostolic attitude that mm-hmm. they've got mm-hmm. and the fundamentalism mm-hmm. which is, is a form of persecution in many ways so we're faced with these challenges uh, mm. in life so do we ever say never uh, when looking at that or do we accept and work with the situations we're faced with that's the challenge that's the challenge, David. <laughs> <laughs> Which you address in your book called The Bookshop of the Brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. And that was a text publication release? Well, I also had a text publication re- release too. And I was speaking with Michelle Scott Tucker and her book, Elizabeth MacArthur, A Life on the Edge of the World. 